We wanted to get ourselves kind of in this situation where we were the masters of our destiny. We had confidence in, in our capabilities and what we could do. And, you know, after kind of calling all the shots, when you're in a bigger organization and you're, you're really taking direction from other people, it's just, it's very different for entrepreneurs to be kind of working in those constraints. So I think for both of us, we were much more comfortable satisfied and and in a situation where we had more control and autonomy. So that was really the genesis for, for why we started. And at the time, we started with a small number of staff, people that we knew. We very quickly found work. And, you know, our plan was really put all the energy into the work, do great job, do a great job, and everything else will take care of itself. That was really kind of what got us started. Thank you for listening. This is Brett Trainer, your host for Hardwired for Growth, a podcast where we strive to help entrepreneurs and business owners not only grow their businesses, but scale them. We do this by having real conversations with industry experts and the founders who have successfully scaled their own businesses. On this episode, we welcome Phil Hollier to the program. Phil is the co-founder, former CEO, and now executive chairman for Bounteous. Bounteous creates big picture digital solutions that help drive growth for their clients. Basically, they're an integrated one-stop shop for digital solutions. Phil shares the bounteous journey from a two-person startup to a high-growth company that has been featured in Inc. Magazine's fastest-growing companies. Bounteous now has over 300 employees and is closing in $100 million in annual revenue. We go deep on how Domino's became one of their first customers and how that partnership launched both companies in the digital revolution in the early 2000s. Key questions we answer today are how Phil and Bounteous were pioneers in creating a virtual organization, how working with a couple of large enterprise customers, Ceridian and Domino's, proved to be the right strategy, why they chose a horizontal versus vertical focus on growth, i.e. broad versus niche, why human resources was a critical focus early on, and the power and constraint of unicorn employees while scaling. Before you take you into the intro, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you like, subscribe, and share the podcast on iTunes and other podcast platforms so we can help other entrepreneurs grow their businesses. Also, please make sure to check out the new free resources page on brettrainer.com. That's B-R-E-T-T-T-R-A-I-N-O-R.com forward slash resources for downloads, promos, and to sign up for our bi-monthly newsletter. Now, onto the intro. Welcome back. You're listening to Hardwired for Growth, a podcast dedicated to helping entrepreneurs and business owners who are looking for sustainable and scalable growth strategies, led by your host, Brett Trainer. Hey, good morning, Phil. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Brett. Excited to uh, be here and share uh, the bounteous story with you today. Yeah, I'm super excited about this. You guys don't get a lot of pub, but you know, with the size of the company and the growth and the success you've had, that's I'm gonna call it under the radar, but I'm definitely excited to you know let the audience hear about your story. So, what I do want to do is take you back in time to get the origin story and you know hear how you were able to to take it from you and your co-founder, I believe, is the two of you when it started to over 400. 50 today, and you can correct me on the second. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Bounteous today, what your role is. Now, I know you've, you've done some flip-flopping here in the recent times and yeah. uh, to get us started. Sure, you bet. So my role with Bounteous today is executive chairman. I was the CEO up until February of, of 2018, really was involved in every uh, asset of the business, every element of the business, kind of, um, you know, been the... Uh, 
one of the driving forces behind you know leading our our growth and just had a a personal objective to cut down a little bit on hours so my business partner long term business partner Key Schwartz became CEO in February has done a fantastic job of you know kind of leading the charge in the next phase of growth for the company you know next year you know we'll be approaching kind of the 100 million dollar mark and you know we 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 wanted to have somebody who was excited about you know kind of the next 5 years of the story so Keith stepped into that role and uh, I have been working on kind of some special projects uh, involved in kind of M&A involved in some planning of our strategic planning for the coming years and just uh, in general uh, kind of catching my breath a little bit after many many years of you know having the accelerator uh, pressed to the firewall along the way yeah, 15 plus years, if I'm not mistaken, we'll, we'll get into that in a second. So maybe for the audience, just share a little bit about what, what Bounteous does and who you guys work with. Yeah, you bet. So we call Bounteous a digital solution provider. We work with uh, all kinds of wonderful brands, uh, including Domino's Pizza, Caesars Entertainment, Kaiser Permanente, Zipcar, F5 Networks, and, and I could go you know, on and on. We work in a variety of uh, industries, helping companies with digital transformation, with implementing kind of the the consumer-facing web products, integrating their customer data with personalization strategies, doing analytics around how these things are performing and how to spend their media dollars. So, if you look at the way the industry has been run for so many years, uh, there was a lot of fragmentation. Brands had to work with uh, a lot of different providers. And I think that was a necessity of kind of the way things were evolving in the early stages. But eventually it got to the point where in order to have, you know, really significant results, you needed a more integrated solution. And so the vision for Bounteous from day one was to be that kind of integrated provider who could simplify things for our clients who had a strong engineering capability, a strong data and analytics capability, and a strong kind of design and customer experience capability. And, and bringing those things to bear on large-scale digital transformation is, is really kind of our, our focus and, and what gets us excited. Yeah, and it's paid off. And 100 million or approaching 100 million is fantastic, especially from where you started. And that may be a good segue to, you know, take a trip down memory lane. And I know you and Keith, I believe, started your own company right out of college, University of Michigan, back in the is this the mid 90s? Why don't you tell us a little bit about the the first sure. start, and then yeah, we actually we each worked in industry uh, for about five years. And you know, kind of cut our teeth. I worked for a startup software company. Keith worked for uh, Hewitt Associates building software that was used for benefit administration. We we both learned a great deal, I think, in those early years. But you know, we always had this desire to start our own business. So we started that business in 1993. You know, honestly, we learned a lot on the fly back in those days. We were very fortunate to kind of catch the early wave of uh, the dot-com era. So shortly after, you know, starting the business, we were involved in some really large kind of Chicago-based 
dot com launches, including apartments.com or what became apartments.com. We were also involved in an initiative with Ace Hardware, which was their early e-commerce play, doing some really kind of some things that were ahead of their time, uh, ordering online, picking up in store, ordering online, having the store delivered to home. And we really kind of rode that wave. We were we were growing really quickly. We were outstripping kind of our internal management capabilities. And in 99, we ended up consummating a deal with the local uh, venture capital group, Frontenac, and joining forces with a couple of other companies across the U.S., forming kind of a, you know, a national footprint digital provider in the early stages. Uh, in, in 2000, that's when the tech side of the stock market started uh, blowing up. That's when a lot of our dot-com business models were starting to kind of blow up. So the growth hit a little bit of a rough patch there for several years. But during that, during that process, we were exposed to a number of individuals and different management techniques from folks who had run you know, larger professional service firms. And so uh, the story for Bounteous really starts when we rebooted. And at the time, we were, we were working under the brand HS2 Solutions. I was the H, Keith was the S. It was our second company. Um, so in 2003, we started HS2. And, you know, it was really taking all the lessons learned uh, that from our initial go around and kind of bringing them to bear in this new endeavor. And we were also trying a couple of other things that were new. We were 100% virtual in the early days and have, you know, kind of have a hybrid model today where we have in-office, out-of-office, remote workers. A lot of those things kind of date back to the launch in 2003. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable back then to have the foresight to understand where kind of the market was going, the employment place was going. And I do want to ask you about uh, you and Jeff and your relationship because I've had you know co-founders on here before and 99% of the success stories come from a complementary relationship, right? Their, their strength, you had a shared, they had a shared vision, but the strengths were able to balance. Not that they didn't have hard conversations. Just kind of curious, you know, how you and, and your Jeff and your relationship, you yeah, know, and I th- kind of formed I think early Keith, on. Oh, Keith, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's no problem. But um, yeah, it's kind of interesting because Keith and I met at the University of Michigan, as you mentioned, in the computer science department. We had you know, pretty similar kind of business skills and acumen. I think we balanced each other out a little bit more on the kind of the, just our personality side and on the, you know, on kind of the the vision and strategy side. I think, you know, I'm probably a little more excitable, emotional, you know, Keith's very steady, when we have tough problems, you know, the two of us working together and working on, you know, solutions and how to resolve it. I think, I think those, the complementary personality really, really helped. I also think, you know, we were similar in other ways. You know, neither one of us have really big egos. Neither one of us mind, you know, getting help or taking advice or talking to people we can learn from, you know, and I think, you know, we're kind of similar in some ways that were helpful because we didn't have a lot of clashes around direction or how to resolve problems. And then 
balancing, I think, in, in other ways. Okay. Now, which, which, which makes sense. And, you know, some of the folks that I've spoken to that had co-founders that are now just, uh, I guess would be now CEO, you know, realized that the visions were different and they decided to part ways early enough that it didn't impact the business. So that makes sense. So, so thinking back to 03, you know, what was the, the plan, right? What was the business you were going after? And at that point, were you thinking, I want to build you know, a hundred million dollar company or was it, Hey, we want to yeah. build a nice lifestyle business or did you even have that much detail in your plan at that point? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, to be honest, we wanted to get out of the environment we were in. I mean, the, the crash, uh, the tech crash, the dot-com crash, it was a pretty unbelievably stressful environment. We had, you know, worked to build these companies and, and built a lot of relationships with the amazing people we had working for us. and you know, it seemed regardless of what what we did or the capabilities we had or the awesome work we were capable of, of doing, you know, the business environment was just one that was kind of soul crushing, you know, at, at the time. Yeah. And I think the reboot was as much about, you know, kind of, you know, just getting to a happier place at work, getting back to doing something enjoyable, even if it was on a much smaller scale. I had small kids. I had for many years, been on kind of airplanes in a different location every week of the year. I had, you know, kind of made a, a, a promise to myself and to the family that, you know, I'd be there as my kids grew up. So there were a lot of things kind of swirling about. Keith was just starting his family and thinking about some of the same things. And so we didn't write a hundred page business plan. We just knew that we wanted to get ourselves kind of in this situation where we were the masters of our destiny. We had confidence in, in our capabilities and what we could do. And, you know, after kind of calling all the shots, when you're in a bigger organization and you're, you're really taking direction from other people, it's just, it's very different for entrepreneurs to be kind of working in those constraints. So I think for both of us, we were much more comfortable satisfied and and in a situation where we had more control and autonomy. So that was really the genesis for for why we started. And at the time, we started with a small number of staff, people that we knew. We very quickly found work and you know, our plan was really put all the energy into the work. Do great job, do a great job and everything else will take care of itself. That was really kind of what got us started. What kind of um because that's still, I know we had the dot bomb, if we will, in the end of the early 2000s. And the digital was just starting to ramp up because I was in that space in like 03, 04, maybe in 05. And it was still in the early days of you know smartphones with a little bit of data. So what were you guys focused on initially? And who were some of your early customers? And how did you get some of those early customers? Yeah, that's a great question. So probably our, our largest very early customer was a company called Ceridian, and they're like the number number two payroll processor, uh, kind of after ADP. And there were a couple of really interesting things about Ceridian. Number one, we we got the gig on the strength of Keith's kind of benefit and health and welfare kind of background. They wanted to modernize their applications, get into web technologies. But they were also, interestingly enough, a virtual company, predominantly virtual back in 2003. So really, um, as we were starting our virtual company experiment, we found a large provider, you know, a large client who was already 
kind of bought into the model and, and seeing success with it. So that that was our kind of our largest early customer in the uh, that really kind of got us going, got us paying our bills. The other clients early on were were more startups. We had a music company startup. We had a startup in um, home services called Ballet Today. And you know, that was a space we were very comfortable with from our time in the dot-com era. The work is always exciting. The work is challenging. And we, we kind of resorted to the things that, that were comfortable and that we knew. And that really got the ball rolling. Our, our biggest break came in 2005 where our network started paying off. And, and 2005 is where we became, where we, we, we began our amazing association with Domino's Pizza. Domino's Pizza is still a customer today. I mentioned them earlier. And it dates back to 2005 when they wow. were starting their digital transformation. And we got involved in a centralized ordering project. They wanted to relieve pressure on the stores and take some costs out. So they wanted to pilot uh, like 1-800-DOMINOS, take calls. Uh, they could take them anywhere in the world. And they ended up trying a number of different locations. Uh, we built all the software to allow the call center agents to place the orders, uh, drop them right into the store, have them flow right into the make line. And toward the end of that project, one of the VPs at Domino's wanted to kick off online ordering. So we leveraged our expertise in, in all the things, you know, getting the orders in the store, figuring out what the drive times would be. We leveraged our expertise to launch online ordering for Domino's Pizza and worked with them, kind of rolling that out and worked with them, you know, building that business. It had to be rolled out kind of across the U.S., kind of following the point of sale upgrades. So there were 5,000 stores in the U.S. and all of the point of sale systems needed to be upgraded to support online ordering. And so that was a, a long effort, uh, but it wasn't, wasn't far after, you know, going live nationally that Domino's did over like a billion dollars in online pizza orders and, you know, really became known as a, you know, kind of a technology company that, that sells pizza, delivers right. pizza. And that really stemmed from this early work with a forward thinking VP there. And then it's been blown out and everybody's seen the commercials and the amazing success. And Domino's is now taking probably half or more of their orders digitally. And we, we you know, after we launched the US, we, we launched Canada and Mexico and worked with them on, on a number of different facets of the business. And that really solidified us, but it also created a very interesting business challenge for, at the time, HS2. And that was a vast majority of our revenue was coming from one client. Right. And so heavy degrees of client concentration are really challenging for professional services firms. And one thing that Keith and I have always prided ourselves on when we were running the first company, when we ran HS2, is that we've never, we've never had a layoff of any kind during our tenure as, as ma firm managers. And client concentration gets you into a very uncomfortable zone. Right. So while the company... I'm sorry? No, I was just agreeing because I thinking about when that 05, you had the recession, if you want to call it the recession, 08, 09, that was just around the corner. And again, with all your eggs in, in kind of one basket, it's, uh, exactly. it's great, but it can be scary, I'm sure, at the same time. 100%. So we started 
you know, the business was growing organically. We were, you know, putting up nice numbers. We had a great staff. We were hiring back a lot of people from our network. But at that time, we really decided we have to take a concerted effort and grow the business because, you know, we needed to take this portfolio and expand it. And there's, you know, uh, there's only one way to do that. You need to make the pie bigger. And so that's when we really began a more concerted effort to grow the business. And it was a lot about client diversification and healthy growth. And, you know, to be honest, in the prior period, we had sort of exercised all the demons from the dot-com explosion. And, you know, we were ready to kind of go more full speed ahead. So we hired, you know, somebody to kind of lead business development, a guy named Dave Mankowski. He's, he's still with us today as our chief growth officer. But that was kind of a big undertaking, you know, that first big hire where you're convincing someone to leave their stable, you know, uh, position and come join, you know, at the time we were probably under 20 people or around 20 people, you know, this, this little firm, but, you know, looking back, it was, it was absolutely the right decision. As you mentioned, the recession was right around the corner. And while some of our work was fairly recession proof because we were doing a lot of work for marketers and, you know, you're still spending during those periods, maybe not doing certain types of projects, but you're still got to, you know, bring the revenue in. You know, we were flat, I think in 2007, 2008, but we didn't have any declines. And then we were immediately kind of picked up and continued, you know, growing from there. So we had expanded the portfolio enough to really weather the recession. And, you know, that's an experience that stays with you. We're always looking at the portfolio. We're always looking at client concentration. You know, when we're evaluating, you know, now when we're evaluating deals, when we're looking at companies we might acquire, um, client concentration's, you know, a huge focus. And it's something that's really important to, you know, keep your eye on. Yeah. And I think a lot of founders, the lessons I've learned, I've heard from them is the fact don't just chase dollars for this, you know, the sake of chasing dollars that you had a plan. And the other thing I really liked about your your story, um, and we've talked in the past, is a lot of, you know, word of mouth marketing, right? Kind of ahead of the time back then you brought in somebody head up BD. And was it leveraging the work you were doing with Domino's and saying, hey, we can help the other brands. We've got the the flagship and this, this is the direction we need to go. So again, you're still ahead of your time. I know Domino's was... I don't know, trendsetter or a pioneer moving into yeah. the digital space. Did you start to see other big brands start to follow that well, lead or was there know, a lag? We, I think people certainly loved the Domino's story, you know, uh, clients just because of the success. And, you know, a lot of times in these professional services organizations, you always have this debate about, you know, are you, do you go deep vertically or you kind of go horizontal? And we took the horizontal approach because we said, look, all these lessons we're learning from these tremendously successful experiments, you know, the Domino's experiment prior to that, the e-commerce experiment, experiment with Ace Hardware, you know, prior to that, Apartments.com, you know, which was an early stage company, but one that, you know, lasted because it, it offered amazing value. You know, that experience from those experiments has applicability to like every industry. And so that was kind of our pitch. And it worked very successfully. But I would still say at that stage of the company, and again, one of the benefits of having, you know, gone through the first company and, you know, then into the second company is we had built, you know, a very good network. And, you know, as the years go by, people are moving around to different companies. 
And, you know, the early stage of, of our company was still really using the network to get to market. You know, we weren't a big brand. We weren't out there publishing a lot of content. You know, we, we didn't have a lead gen engine to speak of. It was really leveraging our network, but doing it in a, you know, professional way and in a way where, you know, honestly, we were so busy kind of in those early days, even responding to the phone was a challenge. You know, who's going to go talk to this person about this opportunity? And then, you know, if they're interesting, who who's going to actually shape the opportunity and who's going to drive it to close? You know, we needed help just doing those things. So those early days were still heavily leveraging network uh, and heavily leveraging, you know, our experience and success and in a lot of these early stage, you know, digital transformations. And then there, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but there were subsequent phases. Once you got, you know, too big and too complicated, like that's not enough. You know, you now need to develop other parts of your go-to-market strategy. Right. No, and, you know, it's a great problem to have when you can, uh, <laughs> when you, the, the volume's coming in too fast for you guys to process and, and qualify. And, you know, again, I think you guys were uniquely positioned. Now, this is 08, so coming out of the, the couple of you know, flat years, if you will, you know, did you guys make any pivots? I'm sure you started to see some competition starting to spring up. So, Kind of talk us through, if you will, that next phase you survive, sure. not survive, but leverage yeah. the domino phase. And now you're moving into part two or part three at this point. Yeah. So really when we started, you know, the, the company, you know, our vision was this all around digital solution provider. Now, the reality is when you're small, you can only do so many things. And we wanted to do things that were, you know, kind of fun and exciting and, you know, got the attention of our staff and, and whatnot. So we were really leveraging a lot of our engineering skills and capabilities. We started to do some sophisticated digital marketing stuff around email that was mainly driven around, hey, we have to build complex tools and engines to make the Domino's email campaigns work the way they should work. We want to have franchisee control and input, but we want to support can spam. We want to, you know, have brand standards. You know, we don't want to be sending out emails every day, so we want to have some rules. And so those types of things kind of really excited us. And I think, uh, while not a true pivot, I think one of the things we started to do is focus more and more on consumer-facing stuff. Earlier on, you know, we were doing what you might call today, you know, some BDE, you know, business-to-employee uh, stuff. And, and we sort of, you know, we kind of just moved a little more into the B2C realm and focused on that area. And we had a, you know, a desire to kind of add capability. So we started to get into things like analytics because we saw how powerful it was. You know, when you're spending money on engineering, you're spending money on feature function, you want to be basing that on, you know, business need and business value. And that's where, you know, analytics is obviously unnatural. The other thing we wanted to add was just deeper design skills. During the period, when, you know, during the dot-com period, you know, we had a large firm with, you know, data scientists and we had designers and we have usability experts. And we saw the power of all those competencies working together. But as a, as a company kind of growing, you, you kind of have to pick and choose your investments. But we were pretty heavily focused on design and we were pretty heavily focused on analytics as kind of the next two things to, to round out the story. That makes sense. And 
as they say, the rest is, is history and now closing in on hundred million and, you know, well diversified. And I just want to go back maybe through, as you guys were starting to build and scale and talk about, I know you had the remote model in mind. So when you started, so the two questions are from a hiring standpoint, was there specific types of folks that you were looking for beyond the skill sets? Well, let's start with that. Then I'll go to part two after you. Yeah, that's a great question. In our early days, it was pretty easy because we were hiring the predominant amount of our hiring. And I would say 70% was probably hiring people we, we knew from our network. Okay. So you kind of knew their work product, you trusted them, you know, d- didn't have any concerns about them working remotely. And that worked really well, I think, until, you know, we kind of tapped out, you know, our, our network. But the early days were, were, were pretty easy. We did have a lot of questions. We had questions about, were people going to like it? You know, were, you know, were we going to be able to hire people? In those early days, we were predominantly hiring more engineering talent. And years later, the issue became like, can we get these people in the office? You know, right. so... While while we didn't know the answers at the time, the answer is yeah. Uh, particularly engineers who like quiet time, and maybe who don't always you know not always energized by all the commotion inside of you know the office like remote work. Uh, they like not spending the time in the car. They'd rather be doing something. And and then frankly, our network was you know getting a little bit older. Uh, people had kids, and you know you know, managing your home life is much easier when you have a flexible work environment. Absolutely. And it also ultimately became very, very sticky for us. If it, you know, if it's a good company, treats people well, pays well, and provides these flexibility that a lot of people couldn't get, you know, taking another job, it provided very sticky. We had very low turnover as a result. How much, you know, is due to that? I don't know, but I would certainly say some of it. Oh, you know, in an industry where people are always moving around and, you know, where honestly, as an engineer, you can always get, you know, $10,000 a year more somewhere else if you put your mind to it. Right. And again, being that forward thinking, thinking about the work-life balance. I mean, there's some bigger companies that are really struggling with that, that concept today, and which is actually a perfect lead into my kind of my follow-up question. And you kind of alluded to it with your rules and businesses, you know, kind of putting in infrastructure and processes in place, you know, for the company as a group. Because I know I talked to a lot of you know, the founders and entrepreneurs, and it always seems they've hit a scaling point, then they're trying to go back and rebuild some of the internal processes or operating procedures. Were you guys intentional about building those as you scaled? Or did you guys also <laughs> have to come back and rebuild after you were bringing all these folks on? Yeah, I would say, you know, HR was a, was a major focus of ours from, from day one, just in a people business. So, Culture and HR were always really important to us. And we said, if we're going to, you know, build this company, we want it to be, you know, a great company, not, not a good company, but a great company. And you can measure that by employee satisfaction. You can measure it by client satisfaction. You can measure, measure it by growth. And, you know, we made investments in HR very early. We also had structures, sort of account management structures and, like career development structures okay. that, that we had developed, you know, the earlier iterations of our company that we put in place pretty early. All that being said, you know, small companies are always making trade-offs and you do end up, we did end up in a situation where we had, you know, people wearing a lot of hats. 
And probably the toughest thing about scaling a business is if you have these kind of unicorn employees, and we had, you know, several of them. And I think as founders, you know, we, we, we had those unicorn skills ourselves. It's very, very hard to scale when you're like, oh, I got to go out and get, you know, five more unicorns. It's much easier to kind of start having people specialize and focus in, you know, a couple of areas that they're good in. And so I think the biggest scaling challenge for us and a, and a very common one was, you know, as you, as you kind of cross some thresholds, you do start to put in, you know, more structure. I don't really feel like we had to go back because we had these structures. We just often had people playing roles because we would talk about the structures and we would, you know, we could, we could articulate the structures, but you might have somebody, you know, kind of playing a lot of positions. Um, right. They're in left field and they're first base and they're catching, you know, and ultimately as this company scales, you got to hire left fielders and first basemen and catchers, not people who are doing all those things. And so there were definitely these inflection points where you're like, okay, now we need to really formalize client service and we need to put headcount in there and we, we need to have a focus, more focused set of responsibilities. And I yeah, think- Yeah, it makes sense. I think that became our scaling challenge, but that's how you can scale is once you get big enough to have the structure and have the specialization. And you still, you know, we still have unicorns and you, you, you love them and, and they're still some of your best employees. But it's like when a, a marketer says, hey, you know, make me a viral video. <laughs> right. You know, it's not that easy to go out and just hire these unicorns. You cannot scale a business on that model. No, agreed. And I think that's one of the lessons I've learned from a lot of these founders as well is the two major things. I wish I would have started marketing earlier, which may not have been... You you guys had built a pretty good word of mouth engine going early on. And then two is getting out of the day-to-day as a founder earlier than I did. It was harder than it was. But once I did, it made sense because then people can take over the different responsibilities. Do you guys find that challenge? Are you still challenged? Maybe not anymore today, but that was that hard? You know, I think what happened in our case, I got out of the day-to-day earlier than Keith did, in part because I was also doing a lot of the firm management. And, you know, I just found at some point it became, you know, too much. And so I had, I, I understood what it took to scale the company. I understand delegation. We had very good people and you know, I, I made it my mission to basically, you know, get out of get out of the weeds, so to speak. And I knew the next stage of the company was going to rely on us being able to be out of the weeds, you know, because you also can't scale if the founders are, you know, in there right. doing everything. And so there was a period of very concerted effort to, to kind of make that happen. It also was, you know, in part a a necessity, a personal necessity, because there's only so many hours in the day. And, you know, I I always told myself, you know, I want to do this, but I want it to be enjoyable. And, you know, I don't want to have to to kill myself, you know, to to, to do this. So, uh, and then subsequently, Keith made the same transition for, you know, very similar reasons and got, you know, more into the admin side and now, now CEO. So, we both followed that path. You know, we did it a little bit skewed from a time perspective. It's probably helped. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I, I want to be respectful of your time, Phil, today. I really appreciate it. But one last question before we get to 
my closing time questions is, you know, what's next for you and, and Bounteous as you hit the next chapter now? Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, we're really excited because we have uh, done a good job achieving, you know, kind of the vision we set forth many, many years ago. We, we have a lot of these amazing capabilities working seamlessly together. You know, we've built a, a BD and marketing engine that's producing amazing results. So we're the master of our destiny. We work with the best experience providers in, in the space, in Adobe and Acquia and Google. And we're just really excited about taking the next step. I think, you know, 100 million is like another, you know, threshold for us. And, you know, it'll put us in a little bit of a unique position as a, a mid-sized provider, because until you're a certain size, there are, there are clients who aren't going to buy from you. They're going to buy sure. from the big guys. And so we kind of get excited now at just larger deal sizes. We don't want to have, you know, really long tail client list. We want to be working on meaningful work. And I think the next chapter is going to be a lot about that. Bigger deals you know, amazing brands. And, you know, I, I think the staff, I mean, that's the kind of thing everyone wants to have that career growth. And I think those steps in, in the in the growth on the client side is really what enables that. And so I think we're really looking forward to it. You know, for me, I'm going to, I'm going to keep my hands in, in Bounteous and love the company, love what we've accomplished. I'm also kind of taking a little, a little breather here I'm also going to be looking for just advisory positions with entrepreneurs. I, I love, you know, working with entrepreneurs. I love that early stage. And I think, you know, we all have kind of skills and, and when a company gets to a certain size, there's often, you know, better management for, for where you are at, at that time. And I feel like, you know, I had taken the company as far as I could and, you know, I look forward to kind of working with, you know, some smaller growth stage uh, companies in an advisory role. Uh, that's awesome and fantastic. Congrats again on, on the success. I know it was a decade and a half journey to get where yeah. you're at and it's yeah. still in process, but, you know, a lot of companies never, never see, you know, that much time or the light of day. So it's, it's phenomenal. So, all right. So what I'd like to do now is end with our, our closing time session. It gives the audience a little bit, a better chance to, to get, you know, you personally. So two, not too hard hitting questions. Okay. Uh, so if you're ready, I'll fire away with question sure. one. Yeah. And that is, what is one thing you would highly recommend? Uh, I would say uh, yoga. Interesting. Okay. I think, you know, for entrepreneurs, if you're, if you're doing, uh, building a company, your hair's on fire, your health is not always like the center uh, of the world. I know personally, I didn't always take the best care of myself. I think yoga is great, makes you feel good forces you to slow down, gives you some time to think. As you get a little bit older, it's nice to kind of stretch out. So I'll throw that out there as, as one thing. Which, you know, I need to do. I keep, maybe that'll be my New Year's resolution as, you know, yeah. I still get the runs in, I get the workouts in, but I keep knowing as I get older to stretch and yoga seems to be a, a really good way of doing it. I just Absolutely. haven't made that commitment. Now, are you a hot yoga guy or are you just the traditional? Uh, more of the traditional and, you know, it's, it's fun to be near the water or something when you're doing it. So there's a class up the street that they do right on the beach. 
Uh, um, nice. so that's really peaceful. I, I'm with you on that one. So, and last but not least, you know, if you could only have one more beverage, kind of think of it as your last meal, what would it be? I think I'd have to go with the uh, Bourbon County Stout. Um, okay. If you're not familiar with that, it's a Goose Island Stout. They, they age it in bourbon barrels. Um, I had it for the first time. I, uh, one of our HR people got me some maybe 10 years ago. It's kind of like a life-changing stout. The amazing mouthfeel, uh, amazing flavor. I like the bourbon you know, hints in it. So I'd have to definitely go with the Bourbon County Stout. All right. I'm going to have to try that. I'll add that to the show notes too for people that are looking for it. So, you know, Phil, this has been awesome. Fantastic. I really appreciate you you taking some time. And if anyone's interested in learning more about you or, or Bounteous, what's the best way to connect with you? Uh, best way is probably on LinkedIn. You can search for me and uh, happy to hear from anybody. Awesome. And I'll add that to the show notes as well. Again, this has been really interesting. I appreciate you taking some time and you know, have a great rest of your day. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for having right, thanks, me on Bill. and uh, good luck with, with the podcast. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Yep, take care. You've been listening to Hardwired for Growth. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit brettrainer.com. That's B-R-E-T-T, followed by his last name, T-R-A-I-N-O-R.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.